Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 149th show. Today's guest is Donna Kennedy Glanz, author of Teaching Dinosaurs to Dance, which I love the title. That's what attracted me uh, to the book. So, Donna, let's get started by you telling us about your uh, professional background. Thank you, Mark. I'm actually a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, but I've certainly morphed over time. I started working in oil companies when I was very, very young, did that for many years, worked in the 35 countries, negotiating deals, um, marketing oil, doing all the things that you do in the, in, the, in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s. Was invited by women in Yemen um, after I had left uh, one big oil company and was invited there to train women in healthcare and law and journalism and set up a nonprofit to do that in the country of Yemen. Did that for roughly a decade and then, then had to leave because of Al Qaeda. And that nonprofit now works with First Nations youth here in Canada and diaspora youth. I then went into politics. I'm certainly a boundary hopper. I went into politics, became a provincial politician in the the province where I live in Alberta, Canada, and became Minister of Electricity and Renewable Energy in uh, 2013, 14. Then I have now moved into writing. I'm a political um, commentator. I do a lot of writing, write a column for a national Canadian newspaper, interviewing people, and write a blog called Beyond Polarity. And I'm probably a, more of a community um, activist or agitator or commentary at this uh, commenter at this point in time. When you're a politician, is that like similar to our state representatives if, the, if you're working? So you're not on the national basis. You were strictly in your province. I was in my province. In Canada, provinces have responsibility for things like energy, um, which is a bit different than the United States. So our constitution is structured a little bit differently. So, yes, that, that's exactly what was happening. Awesome. And the use, you were in Af- Iraq and, and Afghanistan or just uh, Iraq? I wasn't ever in Iraq, but it's one of the very few Middle Eastern countries that I haven't worked in. Ah. Um, I've worked all over North Africa, West Africa, Central Africa, Middle East, Asia, uh, any emerging democracy. I think I've been there negotiating some sort of transaction and a lot of Latin America. So that was my job for decades. And I've continued in different capacities, not just commercial at this point in time. When was the last time you were in Afghanistan? Um, Would have been um, just before uh, they were having all the attacks on women. I was actually supposed to go in uh, I think 2009, and uh, the person I was supposed to be meeting and working with was actually murdered just before I was to depart. So I didn't depart. It's uh, it's it's tough. There are some really, really, really tough places in the world. Um, 
and bearing witness might be one thing, but you got to, it's really hard work to figure out how to support some people in those places. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that and actually working on it. Well, I'm glad you've stepped up uh, in the way you have done uh, in your career. Uh, why, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I was really concerned about how I was seeing people respond to COVID. I don't think COVID created a lot of the problems that we're facing today, but I think it aggravated them. And I saw a lot of people that I care about, um, whether they were running a nonprofit or running a company or even in government, just freeze. I saw them cocoon and just kind of protect themselves. And it's like they lost a sight of what they were supposed to do. And I saw other people with great anxiety. They just saw so many asteroids heading their way and they were just overwhelmed by them. So I wanted to write a book to say, hey, I I get it. I I know that you're facing all these challenges and we all are. Um, There are ways through this. And and frankly, if you just stay frozen and don't do anything um, and think that that's okay, you're you're not going to survive this. 21st century arrived just about the same time as COVID, in in fact, in in the ways that it manifested. And people have to figure out a path through. And and that's what this was about, was helping people figure out a path through all the chaos and and not not stay in that stuck place. So drinking's not the answer here. (laughs) Well, it is some days. Yeah. Yeah, self-medicated, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we all did a lot of that. You write this book, uh, you write this book is for enterprise uh, rebuilders and new builders. How do you define these two types of people and what skill sets do they need? Yes, you know, we talked about rebuilding enterprise because that's what we're kind of forced to do right now. We have to actually figure out how we can do this differently because the old rules don't work. And so you've got generations who are doing business right now. Um, I'm a baby boomer. I'm I'm 63, 62, and I'm I'm one of those people who could be categorized as a dinosaur. You know the hey boomer thing. You know, really, you're going to tell me how to do this? I think there's there's a lot in that. We need to pay attention to it. So if I'm a boomer, how do I talk to somebody who's Gen X, who's right in the heart of this right now? carrying the weight of commerce on their shoulders. They're making most of the decisions right now. Boomers are advising, some of us are, some people are retired, some aren't, but they're they're phasing out, not in a bad way, in a good way. How do you, and what's that role look like? Gen X is, you know, under the gun, gotta make decisions, gotta make this work. And then you've got the millennials, people who are, I would say, the new builders. They haven't got a lot of experience with leading or making significant decisions. They're at the table now, which is great, but they're not the lead decision makers. And then you have the generations following them. So how does this all knit together? So I I use the, the motif of a dinosaur because I come from Alberta where there are lots of dinosaurs and not just in the oil patch. And I've got <laughs> this grouch, grouchy old dinosaur Rex that, that I use on TikTok. And he's kind of the dinosaur. And it's, it's you know, all of us, when we are kind of stuck in our thinking and we think we can know how to tell somebody, you know, do it this way because I've done it this way. And, you know, that's the answer. And then you've got Figment, the, the enlightened dinosaur, the, the woke dinosaur, who's kind of like, the new builder who's got fresh ideas, a different way of seeing things. And somehow 
we've got to talk. And, and so that's what a lot of this is about is rebuilders. If you're, if you're, if you've done this before, you've seen crisis, you've worked through it. Yes, you have experience, but some of that experience isn't useful right now. And what is, and how do you make sure that you pass on what's useful to the next generation and the next generations who are making the decisions or, you know, in the wings, how do you listen in a way and ask the right questions so that you get answers and don't just blow them off? Like you can't blow off the dinosaurs. You have to teach them how to dance. You have to do a tango. It's not an easy tango, putting somebody together who's got really stuck ways of thinking and somebody who's got really, really forward thinking is forward thinking and progressive. It's a, it's a tango. It's a dance. So how are you going to do that? I talk a lot about that in the book. Yeah, I, I know. And and you and I are the same age. I don't know if it has so much to do with age as how people's perspective, if they're open-minded, because you meet young people who are, are inflexible as well and don't like change. And those of us who are intellectually interested in lots of stuff, we find that we embrace the change and, and, and welcome young people's uh, perspective and often ask them for advice and, que- and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. And curiosity, course, curiosity, yeah, I think curiosity is a big feature. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what should the composition of boards be made up of uh, to enhance the company's chances and abilities to reinvigorate the company? Because so many boards are comprised of friends of the leader and or investors offer often little experience in the area that they're of the company. It feels really comfortable when you're at a, chairing a board. I've chaired boards and it feels really comfortable when you look around the table and you know everybody and you know kind of what they're going to say and, and they're rooting for you. You know that they're rooting for you and your organization. That's a good feeling, except it doesn't work. And the opposite end of that, we've got in Canada in particular, and I know you've got it going on in the United States, we've got pushes where we've got nonprofit organizations that have done this diversity and inclusion and equity um, strategy where they clean house, they just get rid of the whole board and replace it with diversity candidates overnight. I have seen that happen and it is such a train wreck. It's, it's not even good intentions. It's kind of knee jerk in my opinion. So I've been uh, responsible on boards for getting new candidates, diversity candidates, and it's really challenging. The last board I was on, we very much needed somebody on board because uh, with accounting experience, because our chief financial you know, wizard on the board was retiring. And I got all this pressure to get somebody who was black and, um, you know, uh, from a, uh, disadvantaged background, um, maybe indigenous, if you can find somebody, Donna, and they needed accounting experience. Well, by the time you try to get into that little wedge piece, you've got so few candidates to choose from, it's impossible. And those candidates are being, you know, courted by everybody else who's looking for board members. So I kind of went back to the board and I said, well, of course, we, we need all those things, but we can't do it in this particular appointment. So let's be more flexible. Lots of controversy, lots of different opinions, but you gotta work through it. And I would just say, it's it's gotta be intentional. Um, you need diversity of thinking as much as anything else. And and um, mandates are, I'm, I'm mixed on mandates. And I would, I'm, I'm of an age where a female mandate would have really helped me in business. 
but it kind of didn't. It kind of works against you too. So I, I'm very mixed on how to make these things formal. I like that groups, companies like Coca-Cola went out and said to their lawyers, um, you know, law firms, look, we want some female lawyers on our files and we want to see that. So I think those kind of influences are very effective and send a message. But I guess somewhere in the happy medium of don't do it all overnight and and do do something, because if you just got people who think like you, you are not going to be fresh. You're not going to be able to handle new ideas. You're not going to see them. You're just you're, you're going to have blind spots that you haven't dealt with. Amazing. That's just common sense, right? I mean, when you think about it, you know, and every study Harvard's done on this subject has shown that the return on investment is like ridiculously better uh, than having uh, the same homogeneous group uh, without any diversity. But everybody, when you have diverse group, everybody has different experiences, life, business, everything. And that adds to uh, solving the problem and coming up with new ideas. And It's just common sense, but forever, like you said in the beginning, people get comfortable with a certain group and they rather just look in for comfort and for control because they know that they, those people will vote along with them. I've been on plenty of boards too. And uh, I once had a a famous CEO that I wanted to bring on and the board was totally opposite. didn't want to bring him on. I said, why? They said, he's too much of a boy scout. He's not controllable. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my God, he's a world famous guy turns out i asked him he said nobody ever asked him to be on the board for that reason hmm. which was very unfortunate he was a very ethical guy I can i can say now jack bogle who found a vanguard because he's passed wow uh, as the pandemic is in our rearview mirror how has that changed companies views of innovation customer and talent acquisition Oh, I think it's upended a lot of strategies and people are now just digesting that. So innovation is a big one. Um, I think a lot of companies had to innovate to survive. So they did things they never even thought possible. And I think some of it now is sorting through that to see what sticks. So let me give you an example. Cirque du Soleil. Um, you know, they were, everyone's seen a Cirque du Soleil yeah. show. They're fantastic. Um, comes out of Quebec in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, they were doing live shows in Vegas, live shows all over the country, all over North America. It was great. During COVID, they had to figure out what they were going to do. They had all these people who were primed to do this work and, you know, needed jobs and they needed revenue. So what they did was they went virtual. And now their virtual programming is just as exciting as their on-the-ground, face-to-face stuff. So I think a lot of organizations had the chance to experiment with virtual and see how it worked. Educational institutions had the same opportunity, especially post-secondary. And I think a lot of you know people who were doing, I mean, it's trite to say it now, everybody doing bricks and mortar is now doing online. How did that work out? Who's going to go back? I think it was a really amazing big experiment very tough to be on the you know facing those questions but i think people really really rose to the challenge or else they withered and died and and we saw lots of that too in terms of um uh, customers uh i think what we saw uh, with people like i think amazon amazon to me is the company that deals with customers 
more clearly than anybody else, any other organization out there. Customers are their number one priority, full stop. Nobody else comes close. And I think for a lot of organizations, they had to figure out where the customer fit in. And I think there's probably some been some reordering of priorities of stakeholders. And that's not a bad thing either. I think the customer, like Lego, for example, their customers are kids. Um, I think they're brilliant. They go out to kids. One of my, I've got three sons and they're all adults now. But our youngest is an engineer. And, and when he was a kid, he loved Lego. Like he would design stuff and send pictures to Lego. And Lego is smart enough to know that that's where they get new ideas. So they go out and ask kids, you create stuff. And, and they then they build what kids want. That's brilliant. Talent acquisition and retention. I think this has been really tricky and really hard. During COVID, a lot of places where mentorship was really important, and back to the rebuilders and the new builders, how did companies train new trainees? How did they recruit them? Law, lawyers in law firms, accountants in accounting firms, people in, in an IT division, how did you keep them up to date? How did you guide them? And not just the you know, the technical training, but in the subtleties of exercising judgment, when to ask a question, what's the right question to ask. If you just said, I can't do any of that, we're in COVID, you know, we're all virtual, it's impossible for me to do that, then those people really lost out. And, and so did your company. So I really, one of the questions I ask people all the time, everybody, is what did you do during COVID? How did you do during COVID? And it's a, I think those answers are remarkable. They actually are testimony to how people are wired. Did they rise up and go beyond? My husband it was is a, a financial guy, and he has this team of people, uh, of, you know, 10 dozen people. Every day during COVID, they got together virtually at nine o'clock in the morning. You didn't have to be there, but you could be there. And most of them were there every single day to kind of do a check-in, casual, informal. Are you okay? What kind of questions are you asking? Um, how are you coping with this? And it wasn't just, you know, people had little kids. They had to deal with those questions. So it, it became an ongoing space safe place for them to ask questions and for mentorship, real mentorship to happen. So for me, I think that transition to younger people is about how do we mentor virtually, face-to-face, and actually really get to some honest questions and answers, just like we should be doing at a board table, creating a culture where that's okay. Uh, No question about it. And, uh, I think that we're seeing companies are going to try to have a a balance between people working from home and working away. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been working with realtor or commercial uh, property owners around the country. And of course, they're trying to get people to come back in because otherwise they're going to have a lot of empty property and eventually they go under. But one of the things that they've been encouraging is telling companies are you looking to build corporate cultures and groom people for success or are they just doing jobs for you? And so the companies are also asking the same question of people. Are you want a job or do you want a career? Because if you want just a job, yeah, you can work from home and you'll get your uh, yearly raise. But if you want a career and move up, 
we need to get to know you and we can't know you without you being in person where we bump into you and just have conversations where we're not just arranging things on Zoom. So, I, and, and now with all these companies letting people go, the power is going to shift back again to the companies, right? And they're going to say, uh, no, we want you here. Some people don't ever need to come in, but for the most part, I think people are going to see it a little bit differently. Polarity has become a huge problem for countries, businesses, and families. We see this every day, especially here in the U.S., when each side can't understand why the other side doesn't embrace their position, how do you think that can be solved? Because it's literally tearing apart the world. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest challenges facing us. And a lot of it can be blamed on social media. And I, I'm reading a book right now called The Chaos Machine, which is about the impact of social media. It's by a New York Times writer. It, it is shocking how we're being manipulated. But I think the the... Part of the answer to polarity is acknowledging that you are being manipulated. I mean, we've always had advertising. It's been there forever. But this is uh, at a scale we've never seen before. So if you're being drawn into a side, got to pick a side, got to be this or that, um, got to be pro-vaccination or anti-vaccination. And we've had all sorts of stuff going on in Canada. We even had a truck convoy in Ottawa. And yeah, weeks of weeks of rioting, you know, protesting around that. But the question, when I say to people, and I, I've been probing this question for a very long time, because I've worked in a lot of polarizing situations. I'm a, I'm a Western woman with, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes working in the Middle East. I mean, what's that all about? It's very polarizing. It could be. So what's the common ground? Early days, that's what we used to look at was what's what's what do we have in common? But I think today it's a little bit different. I think we have to be clear that we are being manipulated. Um, you know, I am being manipulated on Facebook. I my algorithm is being manipulated. So what I say to people, and I, I blog about this all the time on a blog called beyondpolarity.blog, I, I care a lot about this question, is just acknowledge it. And if it's an issue you really care about and you need to stand your ground on, you actually need to look people in the eye and say, look, I get it. I know you're emotional about this question, um, whether it's, you know, some a relative at a table or a person across the board table. But I got to tell you, you know, I'm not going there with you. I'm not picking a side on this question. I think there are still gray elements here. And or, you know, I choose to be vaccinated because my granddaughter is in the hospital. That's my choice. Um, but I'm not here to debate with you. I'm not getting drawn into this. And I think what's happening with a lot of the stuff we're seeing with, you know, DeSantis and, and the governor DeSantis and uh, companies like Disney is it's becoming polarity beca polarized because they're kind of they both pick sides and now they're locked in. Um, it's it's interesting and, and very troubling, actually, to watch how companies get drawn into these things. Uh, back to the dinosaur. I mean, dinosaurs get stuck. And if you sit in that stuck place, you're you're it's really hard to dislodge yourself. Climate change was one of those topics that's incredibly polarized. And I work in the energy sector and, and have for a long time. I understand hydrocarbons really well. I, I've worked in that space. But I also understand the role of renewable energy. I understand the role of hydrogen. I understand we need to have a transition. There is an evolution going on. 
people will pick different strategies. I need to have those conversations, but I can't have them if somebody's saying, well, I don't believe in climate change and I'm not having this conversation. So it just, I think we need to be really frank about this, you know, stop with the manipulation. I'm not going there. If you want to have a conversation, these are the ground rules. This is what it can look like. It's a really important conversation. I think it's worth our effort, even if we don't like each other. And and I also think we need to accept that there, there is conflict. That's, I mean, this is, there's no namby-pamby. This is not about being Pollyanna and being nice. Um, I think you can be direct and clear and, and, and not be mean, but you, you got to be in that space. Like this is just deal with it. I, I think it's a proactive measure. Yeah. And people avoid the facts. You know, I mean, look, just again, another common sense issue, climate change, it's real because, hey, there's 4 billion people more on the planet 100 years later than there were at the start of the last century. So it's just common sense would tell you that. But people mm-hmm. still want to ignore that this is the case. And now we even have all these satellite pictures. I mean, it's proof yeah. on a daily basis. You can't ignore it. You've got to head it on. And we're smart. You know, uh, people are smart. They always find ways around fixing those problems. So I got to believe that that's going to be the case. So um, you talk about Enterprise Onion. And I love the graphic that you had in the book. It has about five layers. Uh, please tell us what those layers are and how they impact the company with a, with a real world example, which you list in the book. Absolutely. One of the um, one of the, we're really comfortable with talking about. Well, we're not comfortable enough, but we are getting there. Talking about how we invite opinions in intern with internal teams. You know, how do you get you know your employees to have an opinion, listen to it, uh, your board, your different suppliers, people who are close to us. We're really kind of have ways of engaging. But when we get out of our circle, our inner circle, and and try to talk to people who are outside of our control, and I think you've referenced that already, and, and it's a little bit dangerous, but there's a value in doing that because they can cover off our blind spots. And actually, maybe they want to align with us. So I created this onion, and it's got layers of the inner circle. So that core is our, our manage, internal management team and leadership team. And then if we go out one ring to like-minded people, probably our suppliers, um, some of people in the same business uh, who are aligned like us, um, we, we know that they're going to think like us and we're probably pretty safe that, that they're going to say, yeah, that's a really good idea, or maybe tweak it a little bit. Um, the risk with just going that far and outreach in the onion is that you end up with confirmation bias. You're listening to people who think like you. So I encourage companies to go a little further, at least, and go to the next layer, which is talking to people who are open-minded. They're not necessarily going to agree with you. They're not within your control. They're a little bit out of your comfort zone. Maybe they're your competitor. Um, maybe they're a technical expert who has some other view, an independent view on, on something. Maybe it's a community where you're going to invest and you're going to, you know, they're, they're open to the idea of you investing there, but you need to hear from them about exactly how they perceive what you're doing. And the next two layers of the onion are a little bit less comfortable and a lot of companies don't go here but there are times when you need to so then the fourth layer of the onion is talking to the skeptical these are people who 
who may be not happy with you and you know they're already a little bit squishy about what you're doing. Maybe they're disgruntled clients. Um, maybe there's somebody who has a different view than you on uh, climate change. They, they don't see eye to eye with you. They're not going to knock you down flat, but you know that you're going to have to prove your point with them. There are times when it's a smart thing to do that because it tests your ideas. You're going to get tested on some of your ideas anyway. You may as well do it in advance. And the final group that is very difficult to talk to are the cynical. If I'm working as a with an oil company, am I going to go talk to Greenpeace about, you know, a bank saying, you know, we're not going to invest in the oil sands or oil anymore? That's a testy conversation. It's probably intractable. It's probably polarized. But is there a value in developing that relationship? Is it possible? That's a very valid question. Sometimes it's not. But there are times when companies are wise to go and have that conversation in some way, shape or form. And sometimes it's the new builders that are better at having that conversation than the the older builders or the rebuilders or the people who are a little more fixed in their thinking. So figuring out who should have that conversation in your organization is really, really important. So again, the layers, your internal team is your core, like-minded, open-minded, skeptical, and cynical. And I use the onion as a, I like images. It's I'm a visual learner. So you just put it on the table. Like who would we talk to? I I would sit down with pipeline companies and I would say to them, they were getting blocked and, you know, building a pipe somewhere. And I'd say, well, tell me who you've talked to. And I put the onion on the table and and they've talked to a million people in the, you know, the like-minded and even the open-minded space. But have they talked to anybody who's skeptical? Uh, not really. Have they talked to anybody who's cynical? Oh, not a chance. So I challenge them, go talk to somebody who doesn't agree with you and tell me what that conversation looks like, because you're going to learn from that. And it's probably going to open your eyes up to some of the ways that people are perceiving things. I mean, people, especially if they're not familiar with the sector, they're not going to understand your language. They're not going to understand what you're trying to do. And they're not going to believe you. So it, you you need to build an authentic relationship if you can. And sometimes you can't. But if you can, you need to talk about it. So it's a graphic, but it, I find it really helpful. I, I've used it on the back of envelopes and the back of napkins all the time. I loved it. That's why I had to mention it. I, I like the whole <laughs> chapter on it. How do you define core values? And does a CEO present them how does the CEO present them in an authentic way? Because we often see these listed core values and all, you know, roll our eyes and say it's bullshit. They don't really believe in it themselves. So how do you define core values and how do you suggest CEOs present it so it, people think it's real? I think authenticity is one of the things, the great things that people are looking for right now. They want to see real politicians. They want to see real corporate leaders. They just want to see people get past the bullshit and stop with espousing the same old rhetoric. It doesn't land. It may sound really good and it's safe. It is safe, but it doesn't work. And in fact, I think it actually compromises how people perceive what you really are about. So I'm going to 
point to some examples that are, you know, what are the values of Occidental Petroleum? Now, I'm interested in that because I worked for a subsidiary of Occidental Petroleum in Canada, Canadian Occidental. Um, we ended, ended up going independent, so it, it's an interesting trajectory. But I, I saw the company up close, and I'm watching them now as they talk to President Biden and they talk to uh, people about what's our value. It is clear that the value of Occidental Petroleum right now is to make money and make profit for shareholders. That's a huge value for them. Yes, they want to be there for the longer term, and yes, they care about the environment and climate change, but right now their big value is money for shareholders. So is that a terrible thing? No, it's not a terrible thing. Lots of companies exist for the primary purpose of making money for shareholders. It's not how I might run my company, but it is how some people run their company. That's authentic. Lots of, we've seen lots of companies make um, statements about, uh, you know, net zero. I'm going to be net zero. Our company is going to be net zero by 2035 or 2040. If they do not have a plan for how to do that, I don't care what you say. It. I don't believe you. And I think, <laughs> excuse me. I think it's just rhetoric. So it's for me when I'm looking for authenticity, excuse me, I'm looking for a CEO can say, this is a value that's meant a lot to us for a very long time, as demonstrated by these actions. And we're going to do these things in the future to, to manifest that value. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to measure it. And if we can't achieve that and we're going to course correct in this way. It's that's real. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I was teaching at a university uh, when uh, Donald Trump ran against Hillary Clinton, and 80% of my students felt that Donald Trump was authentic. He, he is who he is, whether you like it or not. Uh, that's who he is. And they didn't feel Hillary was authentic. And so 80% of my students were voting for Trump. Uh, they might weren't necessarily happy a year later, but that's why they voted for him. So authentic right can go many different ways. Yeah, it's a, I, I mean, there are great examples out there. Another one is um, I, I've been watching Coca-Cola really closely with Black Lives Matter. That's another one I would flag for people. Um, what's the difference between environmental, social and governance, ESG, and corporate social responsibility, CSR? And should that be part of a CEO's compensation equation? Oh, wonderful question. Uh, I grew up with corporate, I, I didn't grow up with corporate social responsibility. When I, in my early days of my career, environmental protection was an issue, but we didn't talk about social responsibility of companies. So yes, I am a dinosaur. Um, yeah. Corporate responsive, social responsibility became a thing when companies going abroad and investing in countries and have causing all sorts of havoc and damage, human rights issues. I was in the thick of that. I was working for companies who were trying to deal with that and respond to that. We had no framework to do it, and we didn't have any clarity about what our expectations were. So we actually had to define them. That was advocates were telling us what to do. It was all over the place. It was really sloppy and messy and vague and altruistic. Um, I worked for a company where we set up a scholarship program in the country of Yemen. 
and identified high school students across the country, a hundred of them, and brought them to Canada to train. These people had, you know, huge barriers to entry. There was no guarantee of success. It was an audacious thing to do. It was one of the projects I was responsible for. So, but we did it because we thought it was our social responsibility. I write about that in the book because I think it was a step too far. Um, for our competencies. It it worked, but it only worked by chance. And I'm glad it worked, but it, it may have gone really bad. So corporate responsibility is amorphous. It was uh, just a bundle of issues and advocates trying to rally to define what companies should be doing. And it was very blurry. ESG, I find to be very, um, it's more guided by materiality. It's more guided by financial people. It's coming from banks. It's coming from financial institutions. And they're saying, these are the criteria we're looking at. They're measurable. We're watching it. We're going to determine whether we're going to give you money or not based on how you perform. Um, they are setting the measures. People are, companies are doing it internally, but certainly influenced by those kinds of, of um uh, third parties and dependencies and tying it to CEO salaries. Absolutely. We're seeing that happen all over the place. I we're seeing it tied to loan conditions. So it's a thing. It's, it's real. It's alive. Um, some people call it woke. I, I think we'll get to that. I'm sure, but mm -hmm. I think it's got a lot more discipline than what we had in the past. And I, I'm, I appreciate that a lot. How do you define enterprise value? Because I think it's always a big question when pe people look at as real enterprise value. Well, I mean, there's the simple answer that it's your, you know, your your financial value, and and that's you know what's the, what's your stock price at? That that's easy, and it changes changes from time to time. But I, I ask people to really look hard at what constitutes value for your company, and I think. Right now, coming out of COVID, we have to look at things like things differently. There are lots of, you, you alluded to it already, Mark, there are lots of buildings that are vacant. Um, downtown Calgary, where I live, um, there are over a million people in the city. Downtown was one of those big skyscraper downtowns, a little bit like, um, a little bit like uh, Houston, miniature Houston, a little Houston. Um, uh, over 30% of that office space is now vacant. So if you're a company or you're uh, uh, trying to decide what's the value of having building space um, and what's the value of unutilized capacity and what am I going to do with that, this is the time to be asking those questions. Um, Amazon, what do they value? <laughs> They value profit, but they also value their customers. And that's they place great value on that. You alluded earlier to the question of, of uh, loyalty, um, responsibility to mentor younger people. How do people value loyalty? Is it something that your employees value, but you don't value or your employees not value it? And then I think that whole gig um, experience, and we did a lot of gig work during the COVID experience, what is the value of loyalty? Because I think that's a huge value for most organizations and they've kind of blown it off. I think we're going to come around to different um, ideas there. We've talked about the value of having a financial cushion during a, a rise, time of rising interest rates, a financial cushion during the time of COVID. How much financial cushion do you need? 
Where's your risk points? Um, the value of not being dependent on somebody calling in your loan. I come from a farming community. That's a huge question. How much independence do you have? Do you have to sell at this price or not? Can you ha- do you have choices? The value of high-speed internet to a country, to a company, to a community, I think that has changed in the last little while. During COVID, if you didn't have high-speed internet, how did you teach your kids? How did you connect with people at home? Um, I've been on lots of calls that have been really choppy. It's it's very, very burdensome to not have access to high-speed internet, but that's that's got a different value than it had, I would suggest, before COVID. The value of an Arctic military strategy is we've got balloons drifting in from the north. I mean, that's certainly something the United States is scrambling to answer and Canada alongside, although I, I worry about, you know, I think we are alongside. I, I, I think we are very dependent on the United States strategy here. But I think those are the kinds of questions. The value of a cybersecurity strategy in a time when we're having more um, of that kind of activity and being prepared. So I think value is a really big word. Values is a really big word too, and the two don't equate, but um, there's a correlation. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, m- many once powerful companies like Wang Laboratory, Sears, Blockbuster no longer exist. What can we learn by their failures and what stopped them from course correcting? Because, you know, my, my gosh, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for, you know, a small amount of money and Wang Laboratories owned uh, corporate America when it came to word processing other th- and other things. And is picking the wrong person to lead unmovable and uh, an unmovable culture? Is that part of the problem uh, and why these companies failed? Oh, these are great questions and sad stories, all of them. I mean, Sears just kind of was one of those companies that withered away and died. It, it just kind of imploded rather than a spectacular end. It just kind of died. It got stuck in its old ways. No refreshed leadership. Um, couldn't see their blind spots. And that was a company, frankly, that when I was a kid, we used to order things from the Sears catalog. They, Everybody they did. Should have, they yeah. Leave. Yeah, they, they were way ahead of the curve and they lost it all. So big loss on their part. Blockbuster, you know, the adage, you're only one innovation away from being from being obsolete. That's a very nasty example of that. But they didn't see it. Where? Why didn't they see it? Did they not see themselves in that business? What kind of business did they see themselves in? I think when you've got a leader who cannot see what business you're in or what the possibilities are and constrains that vision by picking like-minded people or not even allowing those conversations, that's, you just lose all that opportunity. I think it's a loss of opportunity more than anything else. And Wang Laboratories, I mean, you know, gaining an increased share of a shrinking market and word processing, I mean, that's a really big problem. Yes, yes, we're successful. We're going to get more of that market, but the market itself is on decline. Who doesn't see that? Well, do your competitors see it? Do do your employees see it? Are you hiring new hires who could possibly have different insights? Back to that enterprise onion. Who are you talking to about what's possible? I I just, I, I think it's one of the problems we've got right now it's a big problem is we've got so much data out there 
we're, we're, we're just overwhelmed. I could read newspapers all day long and still not keep up. And people you just can't cope with that. You can't do your work and then, you know, constantly absorb all this data. And we can turn some of this stuff over to AI. And I think we will be. I actually think we are already. But the bigger question, I think, for people, the bigger question is, what is the question? What questions are you asking? Are you asking the right questions? Are you asking best questions? And I, that's something I drill into people when I talk to them all the time is, what are better questions that you could be asking? Because you cannot possibly keep answering all the questions that you're answering right now, and it's really not getting you anywhere. So lots to learn here, um, but exciting too. I mean, there are ways through this. I mean, it's really incredible. When you think of Smith Corona, they should have still remained a giant. And BlackBerry, <laughs> who didn't have a BlackBerry, was part of the lexicon, BlackBerry. And yet, I think also when folks, I'm in a venture now in the metaverse and the uh, and it's um, part of its gaming online and casinos are against it um, because they have such a big uh, investment in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I think when people have a big capital investment, they're like, I don't want any change. I mean, just like Kodak had this big investment in film processing, but you used one digital camera, you realized film was obsolete. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. just silly. Uh, that they didn't realize it. So this is where we're at. We have a question from the audience. What do you see as aspects of ESG that will negatively affect companies and the markets? Oh, I think I think we've got a really good angle. I think we've got good idea of, on the environmental side. I think climate change is a still a little bit squishy. And what do we expect companies to do to get to net zero is being defined as we speak. And what is possible, I think, is a really big question. Social, I think, has always been very um, difficult to get your arms around. I think defining the role of a company beyond, you know, doing the business that it's doing it what is your role to add social value to deal with human rights to to do something you know to save the world as some of the the uh, the uh, silicon valley folks would have us believe and believable i think that's a really squishy area that has not yet been defined and i think there's a lot of disbelief there but to be honest with you the area where i find the most uh, discord and still a lot of muting is governance. I think people are afraid still often to speak up when they need to speak up and they won't step into the space and back to the polarity. They're just not stepping into the space and saying, wait a minute, like I'm calling this. Um, they kind of go along and get along and try to build consensus. And I think it's it's often not working. I think how decisions get made is still a really troubling question for a lot of organizations. Yeah, and a few people dominating the conversation and don't want other input really right. in. I mean, how many times have you heard people who worked at large corporations where CS said, we want original thinkers, but they're winking yeah. their eye and don't want any original thinking uh, right. to happen, just people to follow what follow their lead. Uh, you wrote about some of Google's employees joining a union, something that's extremely rare among Silicon Valley companies. Do you see this as a growing trend and are uber-rich companies carrying really hundreds of billions of dollars being good stewards of their employees if they feel 
so shortchanged that forming a union is the only way they can rectify the situation? I think the pendulum swung on this, and I think President Biden in the United States very overtly saying he is supportive of unions has changed the culture around this and, and has given space for unionization. Starbucks, uh, a lot of retail uh, employees, hospitality sector, where there are huge shortages of workers, they've got influence now that they hadn't in the past. And they were really asked to do a lot during COVID. They took risks that a lot of people didn't have to take, and they did take it. The people filling grocery shelves took a lot of risk. Um, we asked a lot of them. And now I think we're seeing the some of the results of that. The um, Nomadland um, documentary uh, that won awards um, was a really <laughs> chilling insight into what goes on in some of the Amazon um, warehouses and, and, you know, the whole unionization push and the pushback there. So I think it got uh, it got in, enlivened during COVID and, and we're seeing some of the, that go forward. But I equally think that if there was a political change, I think you'd see a switch. I think this one is a really sensitive piece. And I think it's got, it depends a lot on the political mood of, of, a, of a place. Uh, there's a part of the book where you talk about uh, monocultures. Please explain what a monoculture is and why that can be bad for your company. So I grew up on a farm. Um, anybody who uh, looks out at a field and sees year after year the same crop being built, hundreds and hundreds of acres of soybeans or canola or corn, and nobody switches it up, and it's just all one crop. And if that crop fails for any reason, you're sunk. Like that's what a monoculture is. A monoculture in a company, if you're an engineering company, you got to hire engineers. So you're going to be recruiting engineers and engineers tend to be trained the same way. And a lot of them, you know, they, they're analytical in their thinking. That's why they go into engineering. And I'm, these are gross overgeneralizations. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But in nursing, you know, there is a type of a person who is attracted to nursing. So if you've got an environment in your organization that is a natural monoculture, you need to pay attention to that because back to the diversity of thinking, have you got people who think differently? So I find that we've got a lot of monocultures being created and we polarization is also creating monocultures. It's creating blocks of interest. So, and, but those little monocultures like feminism, feminism is really you can think it's probably, it's not a safe word anymore. You know, I'm a white female. Do I have a different view of feminism than a black female or a transgendered female or an indigenous female or an, a rural female or an urban female? And now we've got monocultures, but they're being broken down into little sub monoculture subcultures. So it, there's just a lot of there's divisions and there's fragmentations happening. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at that whole question from two angles. One is the question of, do you have enough diversity of thinking in your organization or do you just have one monoculture? And then the polarization impact of putting us into camps and little and smaller and smaller and smaller boxes that fight with each other. It's um, something to pay attention to. You've talked about this throughout this um, conversation. Many companies uh, 
where they aren't meeting their acceptable diversity percentages, which means different things to different people. How did you define diversity and what should companies be striving for? It's a really tricky question, you know, describing diversity. If you, if you get into um, race theory, there's one way of looking at diversity. There are, you know, really, really vague definitions of diversity, which mean, you know, it's not just skin color or or sexual orientation or race. It's It's about your way of thinking. I like to look at diversity. I like to actually unpack the whole thing at the table with the people who are going to be deciding on, you know, what are our new hires going to look like? What kind of leadership do we need? What's our board going to look like? And looking at what the criteria is that we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to achieve it. What's the purpose of that particular target? Then the question of whether you're explicit about it or not, and what's the trajectory to get there? It can't happen overnight. This stuff can't happen overnight, or you're going to be doing things that will be very hard to implement and and integrate with the rest of your organization. I've worked with nonprofits where they wanted to, again, you know, I've mentioned this overnight, go to a BIPOC board, like uh, just, or a BIPOC, we're hiring, everybody that we hire is going to be Black, Indigenous, or a person of color. And that's just the way it is. What is the message to everybody else who's got the, the qualifications to do the job? I think that's a really harsh message and you're limiting your options. We're seeing educational institutions do this a lot right now and it, it's backfiring. They're, they're losing out. And some of those people that would have applied aren't applying because they think they're already out of the race. So I think this really needs to be unpacked at the table. Uh, as you write, there are cynics who are really against socially progressive organizations, um, virtue uh, signaling and using woke capital. Are they on the wrong side of this as it's related to maximizing profits, creating greater shareholder and stakeholder value? Oh, I think Milt Friedman would be quite happy with people like DeSantis and the people who are going after woke capital. You know, there there was a day when a company existed to make money, and that was it, the end. I think that day is long over, and I think that most of people in society would say that that's the case. So I, the the question is, how do you define your accountability to other stakeholders, your employees, the community, the public, the consumer? What's your obligation and how are you going to manifest that? How far are you going to go? So Coca-Cola, as an example, uh, during the Black Lives Matter, as soon as the Black Lives Matter issue arose, they were on board because they'd already had the experience with Rodney King. They already, as a company, had exercised that muscle. They knew what they had to do. They allied with like-minded organizations, like-minded and some open-minded and they said, we're on, we're on this. We're totally behind the idea of Black Lives Matter. And they got in there and they did clear things. But their cynics said, you know, you're just doing this to make money. It's probably true. But that's actually, they had done it in the past. They had a clear path for how they were going to do it. Where Coca-Cola got tripped up was when they, the, the governor's, um, in Georgia, you know, we're starting to deal with with laws of, about uh, election and company and and their consumers were saying to Coca Cola and their partners and their allies were saying, 
well, you need to get on board with this because you need to speak up about not just Black Lives Matter, but this this state legislation over in Georgia. And they choked. Coca-Cola choked. They didn't come out and say something right away. Ultimately, they did. But it was kind of too late and it felt like a little bit weird and it didn't feel aligned to what they really were saying. So it's I think we've got to. Virtue signaling is a really tricky thing. I think there is a sweet spot in all of this. Companies cannot be all things. You you can't fix all the social problems in the world. You, even if you're a big company, you can't do that. But you can't stand by and say, you know, we're here to do good, and then stand by and watch. I'm going to use Facebook as an example. Watch all the craziness go on, knowing that you're part of the problem and pretending that you're not. No, it's absolutely unacceptable. So it's I, I think this one is really tough. It's it's where leadership, different leadership skills are being required. And I think that's something important for companies, too, is what new leadership skills do we need to be able to survive in a world where that's the kind of question we're going to be asked? Are we woke or not woke? What are we going to do? What do, what do you do when one of your senior employees speaks out on social media in your community about transgender operations? You gotta, you're, you gotta be ready for this. It's gonna happen whether you expect it or not, but you can't be all things to all people. And so I'm just, I, I think it's a real look at your values, be prepared, be smart and be agile. I, I wonder um, what you think universities, as I mentioned, I taught the Wharton School, what should schools like Wharton and Harvard and McGill be teaching uh, young leaders about these issues and how should they groom them uh, to have an open mind and balance these things out because you can't go too far one way or the other? I think it's really difficult because they often kind of pick a side and I think that's a problem. You know, we're a progressive place of education and so woke is, I mean, it woke is embedded in all the decision-making that's around them. That's actually really difficult because in the real world, that's not, are you going to be the most productive company and survive through all these challenges? If you are picking people who are, you know, pick, you know, they, they check off your BIPOC criteria, but they don't meet the other needs that you have. On the other hand, if you ignore it all and blow it off and say, you know, I'm with DeSantis, I'm, I'm just about making money. There aren't very many companies that can survive doing that these days. I, I you know, some do, um, but I, I just, I think the balance is required and fine tuning it based on the individual company that you're with is really, really important. These are serious conversations and these are like, these get right to the gut for people. And that's back to the dinosaur thing. You know, I, I worked with lots of people who believe that it's about making money. And if you're not financially stable, then all the rest is just noise. And that's valid. And I've been with companies, I've seen companies go bankrupt, and it's really hard. It's a big, hard thing to do. But there's got to be a dialogue. For me, it's, you know, I say to them, your reputation has a value. Um, what, what are things worth? Back to, you know, value questions. Um, when you do these things, you you send a message to people that they don't want to buy your product. If you're telling people you don't care about transgender kids, like, really, am I going to buy your product? I don't think so. You're going to lose business. You want to lose business? That means money. It's translating. It's that translating 
between well, these factors. I also think that you can't recruit the smartest people if you're not embracing all people in general, but at the same time, you can't go and say, we're going to hire for these positions, which which happens all the time, especially in academic settings where they want to make this statement. Uh, there has to be a happy medium where both sides realize what actually needs to be done at the end of the day to move everybody forward, not just one side. Here's my uh, last question for you. You mentioned a talk called A Measure of Integrity. Uh, please explain what this is and how do you use it? Because I Actually, think that I built. adds all this up. Thank you. I built this tool in 2000. Um, it was a way to have a conversation inside your company and then outside your company with partners and, and um, communities to say, what are we about? So if I'm a company that wants to, you know, comply with rules and, and I'm back, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I like complying with rules. And, and after Enron, everybody complied with rules. That was our modus operandi in the 2000s. So I, I built this model and said, okay, you know, if, if you're, Basic value is and aim is as an organization is to comply with rules. Say it out loud. That's an okay thing because there are lots of rules to comply with. But if you want to do more than just comply with rules and you want to add a positive social or economic environmental impact um, in the community community where you're operating, then say that out loud too and measure it and talk about it and and what does that look like and how far does it go so a measure of integrity is a way for you to have that conversation and and be clear with yourselves about what you actually what your mandate is as an organization what i did in this most recent book was actually add a negative aspect to that because you know we always talk about the good things you know yes we did these things and it was really positive but there are lots of times that we make mistakes your partner may, may make a mistake um fail to comply with rules you know may have criminal stuff you may have partners who just go rogue on you even in your own company, you may have a division that does really stupid stuff and you got to rein them in. So it's a, a sliding scale of, you know, losing integrity. And what does that look like from really, you know, like minimal non-compliance, you know, or everybody else is not paying taxes. So why would I do it? Um, right down the ladder. And it's a negative ladder right down to just doing whatever it takes to survive. And I've seen all those things. So it's, it's a way of kind of uh, parsing through what are we really about? We're all unique organizations. We're not all the same. How do we talk about these things with our employees and with uh, external stakeholders? So that's what that's about. Donna, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Love the book. Gives people a lot to think about and hopefully they can apply that to their own organizations. And um We'll look forward to um, hopefully seeing the next book you come out with. Thank you so much for having me and Rex and Figment. Have a great rest of your day and love those characters. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. 
Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.